Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture is Wall Builders. Thanks for joining us on this first day of the year that we've got a radio program. I know it's the second day of the year, but you know, first day that we get to air Wall Builders and and just wish you a happy new year. 2023 is going to be absolutely amazing. I just know it. I, I think God's doing amazing things. I know there's a lot of negative, a lot of terrible things happening. There's going to be some ugly days, but I'm telling you folks, you got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's going to be a lot of good in 2023 as we see God moving through these different organizations like Wall Builders, Patriot Academy, all these different things that are happening. Uh, we hear the good news. People that are waking up and getting involved, more and more pastors that are engaging the culture, could becoming salt and light in the community, being a positive influence on their communities and, and the people around them. So I just see a lot of good happening. So Happy New Year and get ready for an incredible, incredible year. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach and a former Texas legislator. It's my honor to be here Working with David and Tim Barton. David, of course, is America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. Tim Barton, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. You can learn more about all three of us at our website, wallbuilderslive.com. That's our radio site. And then wallbuilders.com is our main site. That's, of course, where you can get all kinds of great materials to study, to, to share with others, to learn the secret sauce that made America the greatest nation in the history of the world and how to restore it. That's what 2023 is all about, folks. We are going to restore liberty, and you can be the catalyst for a restoration of those principles, the biblical values, the constitutional principles, the, the principles of liberty that make a nation thrive. You can help to restore those in your community. Listen to Wall Builders on a daily basis. Apply the things that we talk about and the guests that we have and all of those uh, things that are that are going to happen for you in 2023. And, uh, and just be somebody that takes action. Don't be one that sits on the sideline and complains about what's going on. Actually get engaged and be a part of the solution. Now, to kick off the year, we've got one of our talks from David Barton that was done just a few weeks back at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. You're going to enjoy this. Let's just dive right in. We'll have to take a break today, and this will take us three days for you to get the full presentation. So make sure you tune in tomorrow and Wednesday as well. Let's jump in. Here's David Barton at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Uh, the schedule this morning is talking about some great awakenings. And so revivals in America I don't know of many people I talk to or I'm around that don't wish America had a revival, something spiritual going on. It certainly does not look like it's headed the right direction in many ways. And so prayer for revival is something that's pretty big. Now, here's the question I've got. How do you know when your prayers have been answered? If you're praying for revival, when do you know if you've had one? How, how do you know if it's over? How do you know if, great, we just had a revival, that's what I wanted how do you know? Because here in Texas, we've had a drought the last year. Uh, we had a really big drought 12, 13 years ago, but this year we were selling cattle. We had lines miles long back in, in the spring selling cattle at the auction barns because we don't have any grass for them. And we've been really hurting, hurting. We've been feeding hay. We usually get three, four cuttings of hay a year. We got one cutting this year and that was it. And there was a poor cutting. So we're praying for for the end of a drought. And you know when that happens, because you see the rain, you go, now at the end of the drought, the tanks are full again. I'm not having to pump water to the cattle. We're great. How do you do that with a revival? How do you know what a revival looks like? How do you know when the tanks are full and you've, you've had to answer your prayer? And that's what I want to kind of go through and help look at. And there's some very specific things historically, because America has been through a lot of revivals. And we know what they look like. We also know what they look like even out of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, there's a lot of revivals, both Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament alone, you have revivals, major revivals under Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah. We can study those and know what a revival looks like. 
We've also got the benefit in America of having great awakenings and having other revivals and other moments, turn of the century revivals, et cetera. So we've got a lot of stuff we can look at to see what a revival looks like. And what we have seen historically is there's seven things that we can point to that indicate a revival is going on, both biblically and historically. And it's not a surprise that history lines up with the Bible. So what we see in the Bible and what we see in history, there's seven things that stand out. So let me go through those seven things this morning, indicators that we're in our time of revival, and they may not be the indicators you would think about. Now, got to hit an aspect of perspective here. There's a couple things that we're fighting with right now that make, make revivals a lot harder. Um, one of the things we're fighting with, I mentioned it a little bit on Thursday night, but the two major things we're fighting with is one is we have a national perspective because everybody gets the news from somewhere and nearly all of it is national news. Even if you get local news, you're getting a lot of national news. So we get fed a lot of what's going on nationally. And as a result of what's going on nationally, we have a perspective where we can all have a pretty good discussion right now in this room or with your constituents. It doesn't matter. We can talk about what's going on in Congress. We can talk about what's going on in the Supreme Court. We can talk about what's going on at the White House. And a lot of churches where I'm speaking now and talking to people about the importance of being involved in government, I'll ask them and say, okay, tell me who the president of the United States is. And they can't. Tell me who the president of your school board is. They don't have a clue. What can they do about the president of the United States? Nearly nothing. What can they do about the president of the school board? A whole lot more than they can of the president of the United States. They've got a lot more access, a lot more ability, but we don't know anything about that level. Same thing. If I say name three federal legislators, everybody can. If I say name three people that make law for your city, name three city council members, don't have a clue. And so what happens is we've all got a national focus, which is where we can have the least effect. We have the least effect at a national level, and it doesn't matter who you are. You don't have near as much effect at a national level as you can at a local level. So one of the problems we have is we have a, a, a focus on the national level, and that's why Tim mentioned it yesterday. I mentioned it on Thursday night. The, the thing, even how the American War for Independence came about, George Washington wasn't the major figure in most of what went on. He was not the leader. We, we think of him as the national leader. It was all these local battles. It was the, the 250 that Tim mentioned with the, the local naval battles, the 120-something that I mentioned that were the land battles. So it's local battles is, is what made everything different, and that's really why we end up winning. So we want a national victory because we want enough lo local battles. So the one thing that stands in our way of really having a good revival is our obsession with the national focus. We've got to get things back locally. We keep waiting for something to sweep through Washington, D.C. and get all those guys fixed and and it's just, it doesn't happen that way. It's, it's not the way it ever happens. So it's a local focus. The other difficulty we have is we have a, an idea that national revivals happen nationally. And we talk about national revivals, but national revivals don't happen nationally. National revivals are just like what you see with the American War for Independence. They all occur locally. And so we keep looking for fruits and evidences and things that we probably will never see. It's what you have to see locally. And I'll show you historically how some of that runs. So the, the, the Great Awakenings is a good example of this. If you go into the Great Awakenings, that's a national revival. Well, you would think so, because you did have 34 years of George Whitfield preaching all over America. In 34 years, he preached a total of 18,000 sermons. He preached an additional 16,000 sermons in England, because he was also making trips to England at that time. So 34 years, about 34,000 sermons. It's about 1,000 sermons a year. That's about three sermons a day. Anybody sound like that sound fun to anybody? Well, there's a pretty good indication right there. Revival usually is not fun, especially for those involved in it. It was not fun for Whitfield, but we'll come back to that later. So he's doing about three sermons a day, and he's doing them on horseback. 
But the remarkable thing is that when you look at it, 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. Now, physically hearing him preach a sermon, it's not because it was a national revival. 80%, that's the nation. You know, he was in 80% of the communities in America because they didn't have mass transportation. They didn't have anything fast. They couldn't get to where he was. You had to be pretty close for, for, for somebody to get your meeting. You got to be able to walk to it or, or make it on horseback in a fairly short period of time. That's how many places he was in America. So what happens is we call it a national revival. We call it a great awakening, but it was a whole bunch of local revivals. And as a result, we don't talk about people like Samuel Cooper. How come it didn't just stop? Because Samuel Cooper kept it going for the next 19 years after the revival started. Sam Cooper was in Boston. All right, folks, got to interrupt just for a second here. Got to take a quick break. Stay with us. You're listening to Wall Builders. That's David Barton. You're listening to him speak at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. We'll jump right back in when we return from the break. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. The Reverend James Caldwell was a famous minister during the American War for Independence. His sermons taught liberty and God's opposition to tyranny. The British hated him and tried to kill him. So for his own protection, he would actually take loaded pistols with him into the pulpit and lay them beside his Bible as he preached. In the 1780 Battle of Springfield, the Americans ran out of wadding for their guns, which was like having no ammunition. Pastor Caldwell ran inside a nearby church and returned with an armload of Watts hymnals, the pages of which would provide the much-needed wadding. He took this great Bible-based hymnal, raised it in the air, and shouted to the troops, Now put Watts into them, boys! This pastor's ingenuity saved the day for the Americans. For more information on Pastor James Caldwell and other colonial patriots, go to wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. Let's jump right back in with David Barton speaking at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Samuel David is in Western Virginia, but Sam Cooper kept it going for another 10 years in Boston after it broke out in Boston. In the same way, Gilbert Tennant was the guy in Philadelphia. After revival broke out in Philadelphia, Gilbert Tennant was the guy on the ground who just kept it going in the city for a long time. Uh, Samuel Davies out in Western, uh, Western Virginia kept it going for another 19 years after it started there. So it was really the local guys that kept it going. What you had was a national guy that kind of ignited sparks, but he didn't, he didn't ignite national sparks. He ignited local sparks. And those local sparks caught fire, and there was enough local fires that it looked like a national bonfire. So people mistake it and think it's a national revival. National revival occurs locally, and that's what the Great Awakenings were. They were a series of local revivals. So the first thing that we have to get rid of is an obsession with the national focus. If we're looking for a national revival that ain't going to happen the way we're looking for it, we'll die having lived through it never knowing we were in a revival. The second thing we have to be careful of is that the bigger is better kind of focus. Uh, Americans really have this. We saw it in covid you know, big box stores can stay open, but but not not the the small mom and pop stores. So we like big box stores because everything's a lot cheaper. You know, I'm in a little country town. I still support all the local businesses uh, because we think that's really important. So business is an area where we think big. Education, we think Liberty University is a very successful university because Liberty University now has 110,000 students. How much more successful can you be? So we look at size and say, that's really successful. University of Texas has 150,000 students. Wow, what a great university that is. 
uh, government. People are tending to like big government. We see that a lot. They keep voting in initiatives and measures. They grow government. And we don't hear the, 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 the reaction that we used to hear with more spending, more debt, more et cetera. It's kind of like we're immune to that now. And so we're just used to big government. And that's what government does. Same thing with church. You look at church. We like big churches. Um, there's examples of, of that. And even now there's 384,000 churches and senior pastors in America. 72% of them disagree with major tenets of the Bible that probably we would all agree with. So in polling, there's 107,000 churches that are called theologically conservative. These are the churches that believe what the Bible says. So in polling those pastors, those theologically conservative pastors, and asking them, how do you know if your church is successful? If you ask a pastor in a theologically Bible-believing church, how do you know if your church is successful? Here's the top five answers we get from asking. The number one answer is, how do you measure success? By number of attendees. How many people come to church? If I see a growth in the number of people coming to church, and if it's getting bigger, it's successful. The second is the size of the offerings. If offerings are growing, we're successful. Number three is the square footage we have in use. Square footage under roof that we're able to use means we're growing. We have programs. Number four is the number of programs we have, and number five is the number of staff we have. Notice everything is about bigger. Now, bigger is a focus that we have, but it's not an accurate focus of revival, not by a long shot. Um, you look at number of attendees, for example, and as you look at number of attendees, if you took some of the mega churches we've got now, if you took a guy from the country that had a church of 30 people and you put him over a congregation of 70,000 people, that's success. We measure success by the size of what's there. And that's not the biblical measurement for, for how things happen. Uh, if you look at revivals, if we raise a bunch of money in church to have a revival in Brazil, we want to see a lot of people there. If only 12 people show up for the revival, we think that was a waste of money. We shouldn't have sent that money to Brazil. Nothing happened there. We judge things by, by how big they are, how it turned out. And Jesus had, over his ministry, hundreds of thousands of people. He didn't change the world with hundreds of thousands of people. There was a dozen dudes that he trained really well, and they're the ones that changed the world. It wasn't the amount of people he had. It was the quality of what he had around him. And one person out of a church of 30 can end up doing more than 70,000 people where nobody does anything out of that church. And it has nothing to do with the size. It has to do with the quality, which is the discipleship element that goes on. Jesus discipled 12 guys. One of them turned out to be a failure. 11 of them changed the world. And from what they did, they discipled others. And the ones they discipled, it just kept growing outward. So the focus was not on the numbers. Jesus had the numbers and he kept chasing them off. Just read John 6. And he had mass disciples. Well, everybody else has loved me. You guys are going to leave me too? You keep saying really hard things. Nobody wants to follow you with all the hard things you say. So Jesus' crowds were going up and down all the time because he wasn't concerned about keeping crowds. He's concerned about teaching the 12 guys he had with him. And so that's, that's a focus of a lot of this. So what happens when you have a crowd shifts the responsibility. If there's a church of 70,000 people, somebody's, we got paid staff to take care of that. If you got a church of 15 people, mm, doesn't work that way. Somebody's got to do it, and somebody has to take up and step, take responsibility. So having a crowd shifts responsibility away from the individual, and God is much more focused on the individual than he is on the crowd. So one of the things we have to deal with, even in looking at world, is you know, as Christians, we're trying to, to share the gospel people across the world. Right now we have 7.5, actually I think it's up to 7.9 billion people in the world, but 7.5, we're going to use 7.5 billion. And the current demographic of religious belief in the world 
is Christians are the largest group at 32%. Now, at the time of the founding fathers, Muslims were the largest by far. Wasn't even close. But now Christians are largest, 32%. Muslims are next at 21%. Then Hindus at 14%. And then Buddhists at 6%. So that's the four largest religions in the world, and that's the percentage. And as Christians, we move from two to one with a lot of effort. We put a lot of effort into it. Uh, we really we put so much effort into it that we hire professionals to share the gospel. And so we pay people like pastors, and we pay missionaries, and we pay evangelists. And these guys have been sharing the gospel across the world, and that's part of what we do. And so it's taken us 2,000 years to get to where we have 32% of the world. Here's a concept. Jesus and the Great Commission. The Great Commission essentially is go make disciples of all men. Every one of you that I'm talking to, Jesus said, before, I, before I'm taking up to heaven, every one of you, you go make disciples. So disciples about each one person reaching someone else. Everyone go making disciples. So if we took that concept, the Great Commission of each one reach one, if we took where we are right now at 32%, and let's just say that everybody in that 32% said, you know, the only objective I have for next year is I'm going to find one person and disciple one person. I don't care about anything else. I'm going to find one person, and I'm going to train or mentor or a disciple. I'm going to help one person. If every single Christian did that, what would happen? At the end of one year, we would be up to 64% of the world as Christian. And at the end of two years, we'd have 100% of the world. We could have the entire world converted in two years if everybody just took one person a year. But what we keep doing is looking at professionals and looking at somebody else and looking at groups and let's have massive crusades. No, that, that's worked, but it's taken us 2,000 years to get to 32%. If we actually did the one-on-one kind of aspect, it multiplies and goes a lot faster. It seems slower to us because all I've done this year is one person. Yeah, but how many people didn't do any people at all? So doing one is, is the kind of stuff that goes with the Great Commission. That's what Jesus told the disciples to do. So crowds have the tendency to shift the responsibility away from the individual. One of the things that happens when you have a revival is you start thinking individually. What am I going to do? What difference can I make? Don't care about anybody else. What am I going to do? And so taking that individual initiative becomes a focus. And as long as we're thinking in crowds and groups and what can the group do and let's have a big crusade somewhere in Venezuela, whatever, that's not, that's not how you, you end up having a genuine revival for a nation. So the first thing, first characteristic of the seven is a revival requires a lot of individual and a lot of local action. There's a lot of stuff that has, it's not the national focus. It's not the national great awakening. George Whitfield was in every single community you can imagine. And that's what it takes to have that. And then individuals in that community keep it going within the community and it keeps spreading out. And so that's how you have the revival. The second thing is about discipleship. Part of this is what we mentioned earlier, the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission Jesus gives in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, since about the 1920s, the Great Commission has been about evangelism, getting people brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that's a good deal, but that's not what he said in the Great Commission. All right, folks, quick break, last break of the day, and we'll be right back to get the conclusion of David Barton speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Stay with us. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation. 
about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. We're back here on Wall Builders Live. We're going to jump right back in to David Barton. Here's David at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. What he said in the Great Commission was go make disciples of all people. And when he said discipleship, the interesting thing he says is you teach them everything I have taught you. That's discipleship. So let me give you examples of discipleship. If we were to take the Great Commission and read it as he said it, teach them everything I have taught you, what would that include? Well, it would include teaching people, for example, things like he taught. Like if you look at Matthew 19, he has a long passage on no-fault divorce and the definition to marriage. Now, at this point in time, and I'll show you stats later, but only about 2.8% of pastors even address that topic. Now, if it's discipleship we're into, we're going to be addressing topics like he addressed. And he made it really clear no-fault divorce is not an option. Uh, this is why about 25 years ago, Louisiana, a bunch of other states went to what was called covenant marriage. Because this is not a good deal. We, we can't have a no-fault divorce, expect to have a, a nation that follows God. And it was Ronald Reagan, 1968, that introduced the, the no-fault divorce law in California, first state to do it. And he said that was the biggest mistake he made in his entire political career was weakening marriage. And so the emphasis on marriage, and now we've got how many forms of marriage are there, and how, you know, we're not focused on that. But that's one of the things he taught his disciples. Peter, if you read... Uh, if you read Matthew 19, Peter said, that's a really hard teaching, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, but that's what the Father wants. So even focusing on marriage, what's there? Second would be Luke 19, rewarding profit makers. This is what we would call the capital gains tax. So Jesus has an entire teaching on how, look, there's the story of the master who came to servants and gave them one mina and five minas and ten minas and said, now, you go invest this till I come back. He came back, and one guy turned it, doubled it, and one guy had done half, and one guy hadn't done anything. And he said, take it away from the guy who hasn't done anything. Give it to the guy who made the most. And the servant said, whoa, Lord, that's not fair. He had already got the most. He said, yeah, but Jesus says to him who has, when we'll be given, to whom he has not, will be taken away even that which he has. So what happens is God rewards those who make a big profit. If you can really take something and make it productive, he's going to reward you with more. If you can't make anything produce, why in the world would he give you more? He doesn't. And so that's the way the capital gains tax works. Oh, the more profit you make, the more we have to take away from you because you've got a lot of profit. You can afford to take it away. That's not the way economics works in the Bible. And by the way, notice how many parables in the Bible are economic parables. We try to spiritualize them, but he says the kingdom of God is just like this, and then he gives an economic example. So that's the way the kingdom of God works is the way that economics works. And so there's a ton of those that, that deal with economics, but capital gains tax is one of them. Jesus doesn't punish the, the people who make the most. He rewards the people who make the most and punishes those who don't do anything with what they've been given. Uh, Matthew 20, the same way, opposition to the minimum wage, inviability, employer-employee contracts, 
no unions and, and the way Jesus teaches, every individual worker makes a contract with his employer and then keeps that contract, even if the employer has a different rate scale, which he had in that parable. The employer paid each employee for doing the same work a different different wage scale. But if you agreed to it, if that's what you agreed to work for, then that's what you get. No, we need a minimum wage. Everybody needs to be. No, that's just not the way Jesus taught economics. And so, again, go back to economics. These are teaching Jesus. This is what he was teaching his disciples. And this is what he told them to go teach others. So this is part of discipleship. John 8, the same way, the right of legal confrontation. Uh, you'll find out of the Bible that the right to confront your accuser is John 8:10. Uh, you'll find the right to compel witnesses in your behalf is Acts 18, 17. You'll find the right to, um, to speak in your own defense. Seventh Amendment is Acts 22, 1. All these Bible verses that deal with the criminal justice system and how it's to operate and, and rights and protections for defendants and accused both. That's stuff Jesus taught. So this is part of discipleship. See, we're focused on getting people to know Jesus, which is really good, but he was focused on getting them to live out their faith and, and make a difference in how they live their faith. And that's discipleship. And so that's, that's the focus. So when you look at the Great Commission, Dwight Moody is a good example. Dwight Moody was in the revivals that were the turn of the century revivals from 1880 to 1910, thereabouts. It said that Dwight Moody led more than a million people to Christ in his revivals. That's a whole lot of impact he had on the nation and what that did in urban renewal and what that did in stopping a lot of the violence in the inner cities. It was, it was a massive impact. But it's interesting when Dwight Moody, the church he attended, he went to the, the people, the leaders in the church and said, hey, I want to become a Christian. And the leaders in the church said, well, let's talk for a minute. And they sat him down. They started asking him questions. And they said, no, you're not ready to become a Christian. You, you, don't, you don't know it yet. Who today would tell somebody that you're not ready to become a Christian? Somebody came and said, I want to become a Christian. Easy. Let's do it. Here's a prayer. You pray. Back then, they said no. Now, why would they have said no to him back then? Why, why was he rejected? I want to become a Christian. They said no. Because it goes back to what Jesus said in Luke 14. He says, you have to count the cost before you become my disciple. You, Dwight, you don't understand what's going to be required of you as a Christian. And until you understand the price you're going to have to pay as a Christian, you, you need to study a little more. And so what happened was Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you don't count the cost. He says, who goes out and, and attacks a city without knowing the size of the enemy? Who goes out and builds a tower without knowing how much it's going to cost? You, you never start into a project without knowing what it's going to cost you. And you just you don't need to get started as a Christian without knowing the cost you're going to have to to pay for that because you might decide it's too high a price and you might walk away. Okay, folks, we're out of time for today. We're going to listen tomorrow and the next day to David teaching at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. Uh, we just don't have time to get it all in in one day, so make sure you visit the website at wallbuilderslive.com and you can get all three programs at once and share them with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Wall Builders. We stand undivided.